I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. We're continuing in our sermon series on the book of Genesis. Looking at Genesis 9 verses 1 to 17 for our time together this morning. Uh, it's good to be back with you all. Uh, this past week, uh, we uh, had a week of holidays uh, where we, uh, we attended a wedding and uh, visited with some family, and did a bunch of fun activities with the kids, one of which was uh, going to the Royal Tyrell Museum in, in Drumheller, uh, which was really neat because it had been years uh, since I had been there. Uh, it was probably uh, the size of my kids the last time I was there, so it was fun. It was, we got to see all the different fossils and exhibits and such. Uh, but one thing that that stuck out to me uh, was the fact that uh, secular geologists have identified as many as five mass extinctions that have occurred uh, over the past 400 million years or so, uh, give or take. And, uh, and that one such mass extinction had to do in, in some way with flooding, uh, which was you know, kind of neat because we just looked at the flood a few weeks ago. Now, of course, uh, they, they don't acknowledge that uh, this mass extinction is recorded for us in the book of Genesis and, and that it's the only mass is extinction in Earth's history and that it did not actually uh, occur 400 million years ago. But it was fascinating to me, nonetheless, that such a mass extinction uh, is noted uh, by... Uh, secular geologists. Uh, in fact, going through the museum, my mind kept on coming back to uh, the book of Genesis and just what we've been looking at over the past few months. Uh, so far in the book of Genesis, just to kind of uh, recap a little bit, uh, we've seen the, the general creation of everything in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we've seen the, the specific creation of man and woman in Genesis chapter 2. The fall of the first man and first woman into sin in, in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we've seen the, the descendants of the ungodly line of Cain in Genesis chapter 4, as well as the descendants of the godly line of Seth in, in Genesis 5. Uh, and then we saw the judgment of God in the flood and the faithfulness of God to Noah and his family in Genesis chapters 6 through 8. Uh, and we come now to uh, Genesis chapter 9, where we see God enter into a special relationship with his creatures uh, and what this means for us today. And so if you have your Bibles opened, um, you can follow along with me as I read, uh, beginning in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the field and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that 
I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, One of the uh, most important concepts in the Bible is that of covenant. Covenant. Um, The the word covenant appears uh, 285 times in the Old Testament and 33 times in the New Testament. Uh, in fact, when we say that the Bible is made up of the Old Testament and the New Testament, it would be more accurate to translate it as the uh, Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, simply put, a covenant is a contract. It's an agreement between two parties. Uh, a good example of this would be marriage, you know, where one person enters into a uh, binding relationship with another, and they you know, they make solemn promises to one another. I'll do this, you do this. And, and uh, if you buy a house, if you uh, buy a vehicle, if you buy a cell phone, uh, you will enter into a kind of covenant. I recently just got a new phone where for the next two years, I will be making X amount of payments. If I don't make X amount of payments, I don't get to keep said phone, right? So there, you know, you do one thing, I'll do... Another thing, that's, that's kind of how covenant works. Now, when it comes to the Bible, covenants come in different shapes and sizes. Right? So sometimes covenants are going to be uh, unconditional and describe what only God is going to do. Uh, but oftentimes, uh, covenants are conditional, where uh, God promises to protect and provide for his people. And in return, God expects his people to trust him and to obey him and to repent when they disobey him. Uh, Thus, covenants, they include the the promise of blessing and the threat of cursing. You know, here's what you can expect if you obey God's covenant. And here's what you can expect if you disobey God's covenant, that that kind of thing, right? It's the same if you buy uh, a house or a vehicle or or a cell phone, right? Here's what you can expect if you fulfill your end of the covenant. And here's what you can expect if you uh, don't fulfill your end of the covenant, Uh, But covenants are one of the main ways that God relates to his creatures. And and we see this throughout scripture. Uh, So there's uh, God's covenant with Adam. There's God's covenant with Noah. There's God's covenant with Abraham. There's God's covenant with with Moses and the people of Israel. And and there's God's covenant with David. And then when you get to uh, the New Testament, there's the, the new covenant, which Uh, God makes with believers in Christ. Now, you may have noticed that I mentioned God's covenant with Adam, and yet we haven't exactly talked about God's covenant with Adam. And and the reason for that is because uh, the first use of the Hebrew word for covenant, that is uh, barith, um, is actually in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18, where God says to Noah, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. All right, so that's that's the first use of the word covenant. And yet, we know that the arrangement that God established with Adam in the Garden of Eden was a kind of covenant. Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith refers to God's covenant with Adam as a covenant of works, wherein God promised life to Adam and to his descendants upon the condition of perfect and perpetual obedience. You do this, I do this. Right? Adam could eat from, from any tree of the garden, including the tree of life. 
but he was uh, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? So eternal life was conditional upon Adam's obedience. Thus, God's covenant with Adam was a covenant of works. If Adam obeyed, then he would receive the blessing of life. But if Adam disobeyed, he would receive the curse of death. And since Adam ate from the one tree that God commanded him not to eat, and thus did not do what God had given him to do, sin and death entered into the world. And from Genesis chapter 3 onward, the world has been corrupt with sin to the point where uh, God had no choice but to wipe out the earth and the, the sin in the earth, saving only eight persons in the ark. But, but even though human sin continues, God declares his commitment to his creation. See, God is not done with his world. That's very important. He is determined to fulfill his eternal plan to save the world through Jesus. And, and God does this by making another covenant, entering into another special relationship with another one of his creatures. And the pattern is quite, quite similar. And I, and I drew on this uh, a little bit uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, but when we, we looked at the flood account, we saw kind of uh, decreation and recreation, didn't we? Right, so in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 7, it, it says that God made the expanse. Okay, so there's this expanse, and, and it separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. But in the flood, we read in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, that the fountains of the deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open. So that there, there was this reversal of what took place at creation. Okay, so there's this de-creation. But then, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, it says that God made a wind to blow over the earth and the water subsided, which reminds us, right, of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it says that the Spirit of God, the wind of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. And in Genesis chapter 8, verse 2, it says that the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens was restrained showing that God was putting back into place what he established that creation all right so so recreation so you got this decreation and recreation taking place and we also see this in uh, in Genesis chapter 1 verses 20 to 25 where it speaks of the the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the beasts of the field and and everything that creeps on the ground filling the earth right they were swarming over the face of the earth well then in, in Genesis chapter 8 verse 17 God says to Noah bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh right birds animals every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may do what swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Okay, so there's there's this decreation and there's recreation. And then we saw these, these parallels between Noah and Adam. Right? So so one commentator notes uh, several of these parallels. Uh, both worlds were formed from watery chaos. Uh, both Adam and Noah are associated with the image of God. Both are said to walk with God, both rule over animals. Both are told to be fruitful and multiply. Both work the ground. Both sin to the fruit of a tree, and the result of both of their sin is an embarrassing nakedness. And both father three named sons, one of whom more accurately resembles the offspring of the serpents. Okay, so, so all of these things reveal to us that we are clearly dealing with a new creation, in a sense, and a, and a new kind of Adam. And just as God established a covenant with Adam, so also God is going to establish a covenant with Noah. And it's God's covenant with Noah that we will be looking at for our time together this morning. We're going to look at, at three things. We're going to see uh, th this covenant in, in three different ways. The first way is the we're going to look at the provision of the covenant. And then secondly, we're going to look at the promise of the covenant and then thirdly, we're going to look at the sign of the covenant. All right, so I tried to go with alliteration, right? 
provision, promise, that I couldn't quite give you a third P, so you got sign. All right, so not quite three Ps, but uh, I did the best I could with what I had. So provision, promise, and sign. That's, that's going to be our roadmap for our time together this morning. We see the first thing is the provision of the covenant. So we see what is being offered in this covenant with Noah. Uh, look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. All right, so just as God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So also Genesis 9 verse 1 says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And again, in verse 7, God says, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Uh, so we see the similarity here between God's covenant with Adam and God's covenant with Noah in God's provision of fruitfulness. Uh, so that's the, the, the first aspect of provision that we see in this, in this text. We see God's provision of fruitfulness. All right? It has always been true and it will always be true that children are a blessing from the Lord. All right? Children are not a burden. They're not a hindrance. They're not a mistake they are a blessing from the Lord even today, right? That does not change. All right, so that, there are similarities here between the, the two covenants. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That, that is still around today. All right, but while there are similarities between these two covenants, you will notice that uh, in God's covenant with Noah, there's no command to subdue the earth. Right? Uh, and there, there is no command to uh, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Right? There, there isn't that dominion command. Uh, instead, while Adam enjoyed joyful relationship with the animals, uh, God says to Noah that the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. All right, so there's, there's no more joyful relationship here between uh, humanity and animals. Uh, and it's here where we see God's provision of food. All right, so there's your, your second provision. It's the second F. All right, so you got fruitfulness. And now you've got God's provision of food. Uh, instead of a vegetarian diet for humans, as indicated in Genesis 1, verse 29, where God said to Adam, I have given you uh, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with, it, with seed in its fruit. God says to Noah that every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Praise God for that. I, I, like, uh, I, like, I like meat. But, but clearly we're not in paradise anymore, right? This, 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 isn't the, this isn't the first time that, that we've seen animal death in the book of Genesis. Okay, so, so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, it says that the Lord made clothing for Adam and Eve from the skin of an animal. And in, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 4, it says that Abel sacrificed one of his sheep to the Lord. All right, so this isn't the first time that we've seen animal death in the book of Genesis. But th this is the first time that man is authorized to kill animals for food. And, and it simply shows what man's dominion over the animals looks like in a fallen world. It, it's God's provision for, of food is going to look a little bit different than it did at creation because now we're, we're living in a fallen world and God, yet God still provides. But notice that this provision of food is immediately restricted in verse four. God says, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Why? Oh, Leviticus 17, verse 11 helps us out there. Leviticus 17, verse 11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. All right, so what's this saying? 
Is it saying that we can't eat rare steak? No. No, and praise God for that. I, I like a medium rare steak. No, we, we need to remember that the people of God would be hearing these words as they were entering into the promised land. And it was the practice of the pagan nations around them to drink blood in order to bring on fertility, in order to bring on life, because they recognized that there was a connection between blood and life. But what they were doing is that they were trying to gain power over life for themselves by drinking the blood. And so they thought, if we drink blood, then we'll be able to have power over life and that we'll be able to, to have fertility and that we'll be able to multiply in that way. No, no. God is making it clear that his people were to be distinct from the nations around them. And ultimately, God is preparing the way for atonement. Leviticus 17, verse 11, drew our attention to that. God is preparing the way for atonement and how it is the shed blood of an animal that would provide life for them. Right, so it's not something that you could just grasp for yourselves. No, 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 no. It'd be the shed blood of an animal that would provide life for them which would ultimately point to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who came to take away the sins of the world and whose uh, shed blood uh, on our behalf provides us life. Right, so that's ultimately what this is pointing to, what this restriction is pointing us to. And so we, we must respect animal life. We must respect God's provision of food. Uh, but most of all, we must respect human life. Right, so just as Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says that God created man in his own image, so also God says in verses 5 to 6, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his image. And that's, that's the crux of it right there. Because God made man in his image, this is what is going to happen. So, so what we have here is the establishment of the principle, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Right now, that might sound barbaric, but it actually goes back to Genesis chapter 4. Where, what happened in Genesis chapter 4? Cain killed his brother out of jealousy. And also what happened in Genesis chapter 4 is that Lamech boasted about killing a young man just for hitting him. But that's the, the way of unbridled sin in the world, right? You strike me, I kill you. You, know, you, you do one thing to me and, and I avenge you 77-fold, right? That's, that's the way of, of Cain and, and, and Lamech. But what we see here is God's provision of justice. So that's the third provision in, in this text. We see the provision of justice. And again, I tried to give you three Fs. I could only give you two. We've got fruitfulness, we've got food, and we've got justice. Now, Christians have often argued uh, over the death penalty and whether or not it should be, it should be administered. But, but here is really where we, we have the... the the principle of capital punishment. If a man takes another man's life, the one who is the taker of life must forfeit his own life. As one pastor put it, life must be given for life when life is unlawfully taken. And though it sounds barbaric, it's rooted in the image of God. Because God made man in his image, Every man, every woman, every child matters. And this is, this is unique to, uh, to, to God's covenant with Noah, this, this, this provision of justice. It's unique to God's covenant with, with Noah. You, you don't, you don't, nothing like this shows up when, when God is making his covenant with, with Adam. Why? Because they're in paradise in Genesis chapter one, verse, Genesis chapter one and two. 
Right? But as soon as sin enters into the world, all of a sudden, image bearers start killing other image bearers. And so God's provision is going to look a little bit different now in a fallen world. And yet, and yet we see how God continues to provide for his world. God continues to make provision by way of fruitfulness, by way of food, and by way of justice. Right, so that's, that's what's being offered in God's covenant with Noah. We see the, the provision of fruitfulness, food, and justice. Uh, the, the second thing we, we see in our text is we see the promise of the covenant. Right? So we've seen the provision of the covenant. Now we see uh, what God is promising to do. And for this, look back at uh, Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. There, God says already, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And then this is reiterated in uh, Genesis 9 verse 11, where God says, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off, by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. All right, so what is God promising to do? God is promising to sovereignly preserve the earth and to never again destroy the world with a flood. All right, that, that is good news for us today. All right, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. We, we do not have to live in constant dread that the world as we know it could again be wiped out with a flood. When I was a kid, I was terrified of absolutely everything. But one of the things I was absolutely terrified of is that there would be a flood over all the earth and that we would, we would perish. I, just one of those childhood fears. I don't, know, I don't know what, but yeah, here we have the promise that that's not happening. All right, so that's, that is good news. This is what God is promising to do. All right, so that's, that's God's end of the covenant, all right? But the question is, what does God require of Noah and his descendants? What are they to do? What's, the, what's their end of the covenant? The answer, nothing. Nothing. Unlike God's covenant with Adam, God's covenant with Noah is not a covenant of works. It's a covenant of grace. It's a covenant of grace. You see, there was a condition in the Garden of Eden, right? You can eat from any tree of the garden except for one tree. And if you eat of that one tree, you shall what? You shall surely die. There's a condition. But there's nothing like that here in God's covenant with Noah. Because, all right, here's the, the, first, the first point under the promise of the covenant. It is an unconditional covenant. It is an unconditional promise, which means that God is promising to fulfill his end of the covenant, expecting nothing in return. All right, that, that should immediately blow our minds. But it gets better because what is astounding about this is that God has explicitly said in Genesis 8, verse 21, that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, all right? So in other words, God is promising to be faithful even though he knows that Noah and his descendants won't be faithful. Do you get that? God is promising to be faithful even though he knows that Noah and his descendants won't be faithful. Right? So a great example of this is, is Joshua chapter 24. Joshua 24. Uh, Joshua famously says to the people, right? You've probably seen this on coffee mugs. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? Well, the people respond to Joshua and say, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. But Joshua says to them, no, you're not able to serve the Lord because he's a holy God. But the people insist, no, 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 no. 
but we will serve the Lord. And so you know what Joshua says to them? He says, okay, you guys are, are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. In other words, Joshua knows that the people will not be faithful to serve the Lord as they have promised. And it doesn't take long before Joshua's words come to pass. I mean, immediately after Joshua 24 is the book of Judges, which chronicles Israel's continued unfaithfulness to God. So he's entirely right. In fact, the the entire uh, Old Testament shows how God's people sinned terribly and repeatedly, just over and over and over again. And in so doing, they forfeited God's blessing and they brought God's judgment upon themselves. And yet we see here that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows that his creatures won't be. I mean, immediately after this, Noah is going to sin through the fruit of a tree. He's going to get drunk and he's going to lie naked in his tent. And then his son is going to uh, stumble in and, and... see his nakedness, and he's going to tell his brothers about it. And yet God says to Noah and his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Right? I mean, what kind of a God does that? I'll tell you what kind of a God does that. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Doesn't make sense to us, but it makes sense to God, clearly, or else he wouldn't be entering into this covenant in the first place if he, if he knew that we were unfaithful and he didn't want to, he didn't want to engage in that. So the first aspect of this promise is that it's an unconditional promise. It's an unconditional promise. But notice too, that God doesn't just enter into a covenant relationship with Noah and his descendants, although he does. But it also says, with every living creature that is with you, right? So the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth, verse 10 says. Thus, right, here's the, the second aspect of the promise. Thus, it is a universal promise, all right? So it's an unconditional promise, but it's also a universal promise, In uh, verses 8 to 17, God repeats the Hebrew word for covenant, barith, seven times. That's not a coincidence. Because you're wondering what the number seven means in Scripture. It's indicating that God is establishing a perfect, all-encompassing covenant. Not only with Noah, but with all flesh. All right, look at verse 11. I established my covenant with you. All right, that's, that's typical covenant language. I am establishing the covenant with you. That's that's what you see in in all of these different covenants. But then God continues that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you. All right, he could have stopped there, but he doesn't. And every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Verse 15, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Verse 17, God said to Noah, this is the covenant of, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. All right, so unlike the other covenants made in the Bible, this is the only covenant that is not made with God's people alone. This is the only one that is not made with God's people alone. It is a covenant that God makes with the world. It is a universal covenant as God's grace extends to all creation. All right, now this doesn't mean that the whole world will be saved. Let's put a little disclaimer out there. This isn't isn't teaching universalism, all right? Because there is no promise of salvation, There's no forgiveness of sins. There's no eternal life mentioned as as being part of this this covenant. God is simply promising preservation. But what this means is that by not destroying 
the world with a flood, every single person has received the grace of God. That's what theologians call this common grace. It's it's common in the sense that every single person has experienced God's preserving grace, which makes our condemnation all the greater if we have not embraced him by faith. Because we received that grace. And so so to to not receive it by faith is to spurn that grace. So say, I don't want your grace. All the condemnation heaps, heaps on if we do not embrace him by faith. All right, so this, this promise is an unconditional promise. It's also a universal promise. And then thirdly, it is a, an everlasting promise. Sorry, I couldn't give you three U's. I had to give you only two U's. I know, you just, you're wondering why can't I use a thesaurus or something like that, right? It is also an everlasting promise. Look at verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. It is an everlasting covenant. Uh, the Hebrew word here for everlasting is olam, uh, which simply means a long period of time. Um, and this is consistent with uh, Genesis 8 verse 22. Uh, as long as the earth as we know it remains, God will not destroy the people with a flood. Right, so in that sense, it's, it's everlasting. It's just going to go on and on and on as long as the earth remains. Uh, what this does not mean is that um, God is no longer angry with sin uh, or that he will uh, not also one day judge the earth. Right? That, that's also not what we're talking about here. Um, tur- turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter Chapter 3, uh, in Peter's day, scoffers were saying that, uh, that Jesus wasn't coming back, uh, that there was no, no final judgment coming. Uh, you could essentially live however you wanted, right? You don't have to worry about that kind of thing. It's all good. Well, Second Peter chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, the Apostle Peter writes, For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So that's that's Genesis chapter 1. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged deluged with water and perished. So that's the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. All right, so Peter is very clear here that there is a judgment to come. It's not a judgment of water. It's a judgment of fire. It's a judgment of fire. Uh, God's promise of preservation to Noah doesn't mean that there will not be a full and final judgment upon sin. There will be. But as long as the earth as we know it remains, God will never again destroy the people with a flood. All right, so there's a promise there. It's an everlasting promise. So in in God's covenant with Noah, we see God's unconditional, universal, and everlasting promise of preservation. The third and final thing we see is the sign of the covenant. We see the sign of the covenant. We see what what the sign of God's promise is. Uh, Look at verses uh, 12 to 13. God says, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. All right, so having... Having made his promise, God puts his sign in the sky. It's a rainbow. 
Okay, in verses 14 to 15, God says, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. All right, now notice here that God doesn't say to Noah, when you see the bow, you will remember my covenant. No. No, he says, when I see the bow, I will remember my covenant. All right, so it's not just that Noah will see the rainbow and remember God's covenant, although he will, but it's also that God will see the rainbow in the sky and remember his covenant. Right now, this isn't suggesting that that God easily forgets or that he needs to be reminded to never again destroy the earth with a flood. Now, what this is saying is that God is re- he's recalling the promise that he made to Noah and to his descendants and to all flesh. Whenever it says that God remembers, he's remembering in order to save. He's remembering in order to save. And so we can take comfort in the fact that God will remember his covenant, that he will do what he promised to do, that he will be faithful, even though he knows that we won't be faithful. All right, so that's, That provides so much comfort, so much assurance for the believer. Now, commentators note how it's fitting that the sign of this covenant is the bow, which would, you know, normally understood to be a weapon of war. So it's as though God hangs his bow of war in the heavens as a sign of peace. So he hangs it up there and he says, I'm not. I'm not going to go to war with humanity again. It's a neat illustration. Uh, Later in scripture, uh, the rainbow will be associated with the glory of God. Uh, In Ezekiel chapter one, verse 28, the prophet Ezekiel has a vision where he sees the brightness of God. He says, uh, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud On the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. And in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, the Apostle John also has a vision where he sees God on his throne and how he had the appearance of of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, I I recognize that the the rainbow has... uh, has been taken as a very different sign in our day, uh, a sign for the sexual revolution. And so unfortunately, we must be careful in how we display the rainbow. But let it be noted that it was a Jewish Christian symbol first. And we ought not to give it up because it is a precious sign that God has given to us. It's a sign of God's preservation. Uh, Later in Genesis, we're going to see God promise to raise up a great nation from Abraham's descendants. He's going to give them land to live in, and and God is going to give them the covenant sign of circumcision. And then in uh, Exodus, God promises the Israelites that uh, they will be his special people, and in return, they are commanded to obey his law and and God is going to give them the, the covenant sign of, of Sabbath. However, the Israelites will break their covenant obligations <laughs> time and time again, and, and God will judge them accordingly. But there is a glimmer of hope. There is a glimmer of hope. The Old Testament looks forward to a new covenant, a final covenant, a, a true and better covenant that will fulfill and surpass in glory all the covenants before it. God promises through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they should be my people for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And you hear all the I statements there? That's what, that's what God is promising to do in the new covenant. And when we come to the New Testament, 
Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples and he, he takes a cup of wine and he thanks his father for it. And he says to his disciples, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. All right, so the, the, the new covenant promised in the Old Testament, the, the covenant that would mean that the sins of God's people would be remembered no more, was inaugurated by Jesus. Right? His blood poured out for many on the cross brings forgiveness fully, finally, and forever to all those who come to him in repentance and faith. That's how we enter into the covenant, through repentance and faith in Jesus. And if you have entered into this new covenant with God through Jesus Christ, his promise to you is, get this, unconditional, universal, and everlasting. All right, so it's unconditional in that salvation is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9. Right, it's, it's universal, not in the sense that everyone will be saved, right? We, we've, we've looked at that, but in the, the sense that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, verse 2. And it is everlasting. And that the Lord says in Jeremiah 32, verse 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Three, three points of application as we close our, our time together. Uh, first, we, we ought to thank God for his preserving grace. We, we ought to thank God for restraining his hand from just judgment. We, we ought to thank God that there is still time for rebels against God and against his kingdom to submit themselves to him. We ought to thank God that he will be faithful, even though he knows that we won't be faithful. We ought to thank God that there is a, a new covenant that is entered into through Jesus and, and his completed work on the cross. Man, there's thankfulness ought to, ought to just pour out of our hearts, out of our voices upon hearing this text. I'm so thank, thankfulness. Secondly, um, since the sign of the new covenant is baptism, if you've not been baptized, I would encourage you to, to come and, and talk to, to, to myself, Elwood, Fred, uh, about, uh, about being baptized. Uh, this, this past Sunday, uh, we had the privilege of, of worshiping uh, with the, the church that my dad pastors. And, and it was really neat because there were three baptisms that Sunday. And so we got to hear the testimonies of three individuals who had been called out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Christ. It was beautiful. Baptism is not salvific. It won't save you. It's a sign that confirms the reality that you have been saved and that something salvific has taken place in you. So, so that just as, as Noah could see the sign of God's covenant in the sky, the rainbow, and be, be assured of God's mercy. So also the sign of the new covenant, baptism, assures us of God's mercy, that, that those who trust in Jesus Christ alone will be saved. That's a promise that we can take with us to the end. All right, so, so thankfulness, baptism, and then last, the last point of application, if you've not entered into this new covenant with God through faith in Jesus Christ, that I, I would encourage you to do so today. Put your faith in Jesus Christ today. Don't, don't be content with preservation. Right? Don't, don't simply enjoy some good, good times on your way to the grave because there is judgment coming. Not a flood, but a fire. 
And one day, we will stand before God in judgment. And we will need more than just this covenant of preservation. We will need the, the new covenants that God established with believers in Jesus. Uh, we will need more than common grace. We will need the grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So the question for us is, have we entered into this new covenant with God? Have we done that? The, the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus as the guarantor of a better covenant. And so it is. <laughs> as he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Would you count yourself in that number? Have you entered into this new covenant? I hope you do. I hope you have. I hope you will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise to Noah and to all creation. For we know that we are undeserving recipients of your grace and goodness. And we thank you for the sign of the covenant that assures us of your faithfulness. Your word tells us that if we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him we deny him, he will de deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so help us, God, to trust in your word and to, we, we pray that you would increase our faith in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.